I'm going to say good morning, and I'd love you to say it back like you're excited to be in God's presence and in the company of one another. Good morning. Turn with me to Psalm 100. Uh, if you did not bring your Bibles, there's a red one right underneath you or around you. Uh, and Psalm 100 is page 937 in your red Bible. Uh, this is the last Sunday in our Psalm series. So if you missed any of the previous weeks, I would ask you to go catch up on the podcast because this has been an enriching series and study of ancient texts that are applicable in our lives today. Formative and inspiring text. So let me begin today by telling you a brief story about a college professor and president, um, an author and a missionary, Dr. Raymond Edmond. Billy Graham once called Edmond the most unforgettable Christian that he had ever met. In 1967, Edmund was preaching at the Wheaton College Chapel service, and in his sermon, he shared with his listeners a personal experience that he had. Years earlier, Edmund had traveled to Africa to meet with the king of Ethiopia. He told the students that day of the strict protocol that he had to observe in order to have an audience with the king. And if he didn't meet and follow through with this strict protocol, he would not be considered worthy of coming into the king's presence. Dr. Edmund then drew the parallel for those students in attendance. You have an audience with the king of kings. The king of Ethiopia and every other nation on earth would fall to their faces and cast their crowns in the presence of the Almighty King. Edmund asked the audience that day this question. Have you truly ever comprehended the awesome act of worship? Maybe worship is just something you do because other people in your family do it and it's this one hour of Sunday mornings. Have you ever truly comprehended the awesome act of worship? Moments after asking that question, the 67-year-old preacher collapsed on stage and went to Jesus. Those were a few of his final words that morning. And a great question for us to ask today as we look at the 100th Psalm. A psalm of praise and thanksgiving. Have we truly ever comprehended the awesome act of worship? And as I typed that in my notes this week, I thought, well, what are the things that prevent us from from truly comprehending the awesome act of worship? Now, you and I both know there's a long list of things that can prevent us from comprehending the awesome act of worship. But the one that I want to address today in particular is when we make worship about ourselves, it clouds our comprehension of the awesome act of worship. When we show up for church and we worship thinking of ourselves, it clouds our perception of who God is and the privilege of being in his presence. If our focus is truly on the presence of the Lord, then we aren't disgruntled and critical when our preferences aren't met in worship. Because we ought to be a people who can worship in any place at any time, for any reason, with any people, under any condition. We should not be a people that needs X, Y, Z to be the way that we like it in order to experience God's presence and to be uh, 
in the midst of his presence, appreciating the opportunity to be in his presence. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling to a lot of countries and preaching in a variety of different churches and diverse cultures. And this year, I have the privilege of taking my 18th trip to Haiti. And it's a country that Andrea and I love dearly, and we've spent a lot of time there. And there's a village that we've gone to many, many, many times. And we love this village. And the last time I was there, I took this picture of the church in the village. And I stood there and I actually shared with someone that I was standing with that I had this overwhelming sense of gratitude for our church and the place that we get to call our church home, the place that we get to worship. But at the same time, I was overwhelmed as I thought of the difficulties and inconveniences that this congregation endured and experienced in order to gather for worship. The roof of their church, as you can see, is a blue tarp full of holes and barely suspended in the air. Their pews are built out of old boards, no cushions, no back support, not very comfortable. As they sing and they dance in the scorching heat, beads of sweat drip off of their chin onto the dirt floor. Or tropical rains arrive with little notice interrupting their worship, forcing everyone to quickly walk back to their homes. And I'm not kidding when I tell you that chickens and goats unapologetically walk in and about the church the entire two and a half hour service. The pastor places his Bible on his podium, eight concrete cinder blocks stacked on top of one another, no sturdy roof, No beautiful stage, no instruments, no sound system, no curtain, no soft chairs, no lights, no parking lot, no coffee or food, no restrooms, no childcare, no nursery, and no air conditioning. Yet maybe in the midst of all we see that they lack in this photo, that could be their blessing. That in the midst of that place of worship, their preferences are never given the opportunity to interfere with their attention on God. Their preferences are never given the opportunity to interfere with their worship. So worship is not about our preferences. It's about the incredible privilege and invitation to approach the throne of God. And when we truly comprehend, as Dr. Edmund asked, the awesome act of worship, and we fix our gaze on Jesus alone, we inevitably forget about ourselves. It's just too hard to think about ourselves when we're that fixed on the presence of God. So Psalm 100 gives us this pathway to enter into God's presence, this literary masterpiece of worship and thanksgiving. What protocol can my heart take in order to experience God's presence, to enter into that place of worship? Look with me at verse 1. And to shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. I don't know if you pick up the same sensation that I do when I read this, but this seems like a highly charged burst of energy 
someone entering into God's presence, publicly announcing and declaring allegiance to God before the entire world. This is my Lord, and I have come to worship Him. This is an invitation to, you know, like jump on your feet and give God a standing ovation to applaud who He is. A.W. Tozer puts it this way, God wants us to be astonished not just entertained for four songs, astonished at the inconceivable magnitude and splendor of his name. And then a command, worship him with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. You know, what is it about these joyful songs? Because we sing songs together here at Redeemer. It's important to remember when we enter into God's presence together and worship together, we don't sing songs at church to create our gladness. That's not Allison and the band's job. We've never asked them to do that. We need you to make these people glad. It's not to create gladness in us. It's to give us the opportunity to express the gladness that we already feel, knowing that I was once apart from God because of my sin and depravity, but he has adopted me into his family. I've been given the right to be called his son. What a privilege. And this is the space and time in which we express the gladness that we show up with. So if you're here to be made glad by any of us on this stage, well, sorry. We will fall short and disappoint every time. So singing is a way of approaching God. It also instills in us a fitting anticipation for heaven. You know, because if we grow weary of worshiping here in this sanctuary, oh, heaven's going to be hard, isn't it? Because that's all we do in heaven. We worship God for all of eternity. And so this space and time gives us, gives us this fitting anticipation for heaven. Verse 3, know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This acknowledgement is so critical because even when we stand in corporate worship, even when the team is doing their job to take us somewhere, to meditate on lyrics, to, to allow us this space and time to corporately lift our voice and sing songs, spiritual praise together, our my squirrel, Right? I mean, our minds, wah, squirrel. Like, we're just here one moment. I have singing to you, Lord. I'm thankful for your presence. Ooh, where are we going to lunch? You know what I'm saying? Like, what did, what did she, what'd she make on her test this week? Like, we just, what do I got to do at work this week? What time's my flight leave tomorrow? We naturally follow the squirrel in the room. We get distracted from God's presence. And so if you find yourself in God's presence and you're distracted and you don't know how to stay centered on him, look, stand there and with your mouth just say that very first part of verse 3 over and over again. If worship is hard for you, try this as we worship after the sermon. Try this. Just stand there and say over and over and over again, proclaiming your belief and trust in God by saying, the Lord is God. When we sing here in a minute, say that 150 times. The Lord is God. 
Oh, he's God. The Lord is God. Yes, Lord, you are God. Let that come alive and light a fire in your belly this morning. We can't be distracted in times of worship, and we certainly can't worship an idol, which includes our spouse or children or our job or our image or our 401k or whatever else. Worship is a time to draw near to God, to be reminded who he is, the creator, and to be reminded of who we are, the creation. So this is the intellectual side of our worship, acknowledging the Lord is God. It's the precursor to praise. He is God. And then it says he's the shepherd. We are the sheep. And we're going to come back to that relationship in a moment. Verse 4. Enter his gates. There is the invitation, an analogy from the temple. Enter the gates. And then we're informed. How do we open the door into God's presence? Well, enter the gates with an overwhelming sense of gratitude. Thanksgiving. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Just picture like somebody has you over to dinner. Yeah, it'd be kind of awkward to just walk in their house. Thank you, 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 you know. It's weird, right? Come into church like that. Just walk into church with that attitude of thanksgiving. Thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God, thank you, God. You love me. You saved me. You've forgiven me over and over again. You provide for me. You protect me, you hear me. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. And then we enter his courts with praise, exalting God for who he is. You're a good father. You're kind, you're merciful, you're all-knowing, you're omnipresent, you're the king of kings, you're the lord of lords, the alpha, omega, the beginning, the end. You're my healer, God. Yes, God, you're my healer. Praising him for who he is. You know, this is an interesting thing I've experienced with my children because before their, their mom, before Andrea, my wife, goes on a trip, which she just did this week, you know, we gather around her and I ask my children, let's bless your mommy, let's pray for her, let's pray for her travel and her rest, and let's just bless her, let's, let's tell her the things we love about her. And then the children start chiming in. Oh, mommy, you cook so wonderful. Mommy, hmm, I love that you do my laundry. Mommy, you drive me everywhere I have to go. Mommy, you do this and you do that and you do this and it's all about me. Right? Let's be honest. And I had to start teaching my children, when we bless mommy, yeah, we want to have a grateful spirit. We want to show gratitude for what mommy does for us, right? But it's very different to then transition from this is what you do, mommy, to this is who you are. And my children start saying, mommy, you are selfless. Mommy, you rarely think about yourself. Mommy, you are kind. Mommy, you're so generous. Mom, you never complain. Mom, you're a great example. What if, what if we looked at worship that way, where we don't just tell God, thank you for what you do for me. Oh, God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for who you are. The Hebrew word for blessing his name, give thanks to him, and bless his name is Barak, which means to kneel, to fall at the feet of God. 
when we worship. There's a story of a young man who was making his first climb in the Alps, accompanied by two experienced guides. It was a steep and hazardous incline, but he felt secure because he had one guide ahead of him and one following behind him, and for hours they climbed. And now, breathless and tired, they reached for those rocks protruding through the sun above them, the summit. The guide ahead wished to let the young climber have the very first glorious view of heaven and earth, and he moved aside to let him go first. Now, forgetting the strong winds that would blow across these summit rocks, the young man leapt to his feet. The guide reached out and grabbed his jacket and pulled him down as fast as he could. On your knees, sir. You're only safe here on your knees. Who is God to you? When you enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise, who is God to you? He's the God of the universe, the essence of his being, his all-encompassing power and nature and character should drive us to our knees, literally, not figuratively, literally, out of complete respect and reverence for who he is, out of complete submission to his authority. Verse 5, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. So we're reminded he's good, he's gracious, he's kind, his mercy's eternal, but his love endures forever. His love endures forever, a covenantal love, like a contract that is never broken, a contract that will never expire. He's not fickle or forgetful. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this mention of the generations is a great reminder of Psalm chapter 145. Our praise, your praise influences your children. Whether you want to admit it or whether you know it or not, your praise influences your children, the younger generations in this church family. And so, we're given a responsibility. If you have children or grandchildren or any influence in any child's life, you have a great responsibility that we see here. Part of his faithfulness continuing through all generations, of course, is just his faithfulness. But it hinges also on your expression of his faithfulness to the younger generations. And so we have this great privilege and responsibility to tell our young people about God's mighty acts, to speak of the glorious splendor of his majesty, to tell our young people of the power of God's awesome works, to proclaim his great deeds, to joyfully sing of his righteousness. Tell your children that God is gracious and compassionate and rich in love and slow to anger. Tell your grandchildren that God is faithful, faithful to his promises to us, that he opens his hands and satisfies our desires. Tell children that God fulfills the desires of those who fear him. Tell your children that God's going to hear their cry, that God wants to save them, that God watches over them all the time. Tell them. What do we talk about with our kids? Now, here's a shameless plug. Once again, 
Get in the presence of God with your children. And those of you with grandchildren who have children that don't bring your grandchildren to church, go to their house on Sunday morning, take them a great big breakfast to bribe them, and then snatch up your grandchildren and get them here. Not a child should be at home on a Sunday morning when the family of Christ is meeting across the entire world to worship together in a corporate setting. We have got to value our time together in this setting. One of the very uh, top predictors of young people when they turn 18 or 20 or whenever they move out of your house, 29, when they get that independence from you, one of the top predictors of whether or not they will continue in their relationship with Jesus and grow in their faith, can you guess it? Did they engage in worship in a corporate setting with you? Did they see mom and dad and grandma and grandpa worship? It's one of the top predictors of maintaining and growing in their faith when they reach independence. And so the point is, we see right here in Psalm 100 and Psalm 145, worship is contagious. The more you will commit and discipline yourself and prioritize worship in front of your young people, the better chance we'll see them catch on. I mentioned earlier that we would return to the relationship between a shepherd and sheep. And if you've read your Bible, this is a metaphor that you've seen over and over again, this this relationship that if we uh, saw the dynamics of God's love for God's people through that sheep and shepherd relationship, our worship would be enhanced considerably. Sheep hear and respond to the shepherd's voice. They know his voice and they follow. And if an unknown voice calls for the flock, they will not follow. They will sit and wait patiently until they hear the voice that they recognize. I have a video from Norway where a few people attempt to call a flock of sheep and the sheep don't move. And then they hear the voice of their shepherd. Watch this video. One more time.
<laughs> Isn't that awesome? They know the voice of their shepherd. And if it's not their shepherd's voice, they won't come. When they hear their shepherd, they come. Furthermore, the shepherd has unwavering determination to protect his sheep. The shepherd picks a pasture where there is a sufficient supply of food. He scouts new land, considering the proximity of a source of water. A flock will destroy a pasture if they stay too long, so a skilled shepherd knows how to move his sheep along. Sheep are extremely vulnerable, and they easily panic. The presence of a shepherd brings comfort. Sheep that trust their shepherd can lie down. They can be calm. A shepherd is known to even sing to his sheep. With larger flocks, sheep will actually quarrel and fight. Shepherd calms the tension. And if a sheep wanders off, you know what the shepherd does. He diligently searches at all costs. The shepherd will pass time by playing with his sheep. The shepherd watches for specific needs of individual sheep. He's compassionate and patient and kind. And when a sheep is injured or sick or needs extra attention or care, the shepherd is there. David, who we've learned from in this series, is responsible for nearly half of the Psalms. And he was a shepherd when he was little. He famously writes in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is, present tense, he is. He, it's not that he was or will be or has been. He is my shepherd. And he knew intensely from experience a shepherd's job. He had his share of sleepless nights and he risked his life to protect his flock. Not even a lion or a bear, not even a lion or a bear could cause David's devotion to waver. That's David, and then there's Jesus. And so we see the essence of the gospel portrayed in John 10. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I lay down my life. Jesus went to the most extreme measure for us, didn't he? Not just risking his life, but all along knowing his purpose was to give his life. 